Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. I'm Father Fessio, the founder and editor of Ignatius Press. And with me today is my friend and fellow Jesuit, Father Bog McTagg. But first of all, because it's McTagg, McTeague, McTighg, I would like you to tell us what the correct pronunciation of your name is. Well, you know, Father Fessio, when I went to Ireland, everyone told me that I was spelling it wrong and saying it wrong, but no one could agree on a proper spelling or pronunciation, which only told me that I really was in Ireland after all. Uh, I was taught to pronounce it McTagg. McTagg. Yeah. And and my research, the most Gaelic, the most Celtic oldest form is T-A-D-G-H, Tighg, which means bard, poet, and philosopher. So it's not only a surname for me, it is an eponym as well. Very good. And how would you like it pronounced for public consumption? McTagg, long A. McTagg, all right. And so as you all know, Father McTagg uh, is the host of an interview show, we're turning tables now because he usually interviews. I'm usually an interviewee, but in this case, I'm going to be the interviewer. He'll be the interviewee. Uh, but that show is called The Catholic Current, and it's available somewhere or other in the United States, mainly in the East, but it's also it's available on the- in every podcast platform, and you can listen to it from the Station of the Cross studios at thestationofthecross.com. We have That's good. programs Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. Eastern. So if you're mowing the lawn or washing dishes or, you know, exercising, this is a great accompaniment. <clears throat> Father McTague has a doctorate in philosophy from Georgetown University. Oh, no, no, Prior- the Catholic to- University of America. Heaven oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry to, sorry to have. Uh, <clears throat> I'm wounded. Uh, yeah, terrible. <laughs> but but he, then, he then didn't enter the Society of Jesus after that doctorate. You had it before you entered, right? Yes, I had it before I entered. And and I found my Jesuit vocation through Father Spitzer. I was a layman in doctoral studies. He was a young priest, and we had the same dissertation director, uh, the great Dr. Paul Weiss. So he's got his doctorate in philosophy. He's taught at the university level. Uh, I got to know him well when he came to Auburn University in the early 2000s. We actually were, excuse me, sweet mates. Excuse me. Uh, and uh, now, as a member of the Jesuits in Exile, he is uh, living in the East Bay, San Francisco, and running at a parish, and also five days a week for an hour, he has his interview show. But we are going to interview him on his recent book. We published one book by him called Real Philosophy for Real Persons. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure how big an audience that would have, how many real persons are out there. <clears throat> but this uh, next book... Uh, is called Christendom Lost and Found, Meditations for a Post-Post-Christian Era. Now, I've actually read the book, Father McTagg. Oh, good. But I don't want to reveal too much of the contents because I want our viewers and listeners to buy it and read it themselves. Yes. But uh, what do you mean by post-post-Christian era? Uh, That's a question I'm frequently asked. Um, There are (laughs) senior members of a certain religious community with which you and I have some familiarity who uh, calmly talk about us living in a time of mature secularism. 
here's my historical take on that. Since the French Revolution in 1789, France, once known as the eldest daughter of the church, said, here's a great idea. We'll all live without Christ publicly and privately, communally and individually, and it'll be great. And what we ended up with is a lot of bad art and a lot of really uh, and a lot of dead bodies uh, as well. And it's kind of gone downhill ever since. Uh, this book was written as kind of a war journal during the uh, the COVID interruptions and people kinetically thirsting for justice in, in the streets uh, by burning down their neighbor's shops. So it was written between November of 2019 and February of 2021. And as I looked at the window, as I looked at the headlines and I looked in the mirror, I'd say, this can't be right. This can't be what God intended for his people. We can certainly do better. And that's why I, I talked about we need to find a way to recover the wisdom of what used to be known as Christendom. Christendom was that was a marriage of nature and grace. It was human nature and, and Christian revelation uh, rooted in Jerusalem, uh, grew up and matured in <clears throat> Europe, and then spread out its universal good fruits throughout the world. Uh, we've had induced cultural amnesia since 1789, where we've been suffering the bitter fruits of that for decades now. I, I want to suggest that if we want to go forward, we have to recall the reign of Christ. All right. <clears throat> well, you're an interesting amalgam of Irish and Italian, yes. <clears throat> excuse me, which makes you somewhat voluble. Uh, <laughs> and, and you've explained what the Christian era is, but what it, this is post, post-Christian. Let's start. What is the post-Christian era? Well, the post-Christian era is since 1789, uh, the West that used to be called Christendom has been parasitic uh, upon the, the the body of Christ, upon Western civilization, which is really Christian civilization. Uh, the dignity of, of the human individual, the flourishing of the arts and sciences under the, the reign of, of Christ the King. We've, we've rejected Christ the King and have just been carrying on the, the momentum of that civilization, calling it enlightenment, now then modernity, then post-modernity. The post-post-Christian era said, well, we tried living without Christ. It was an absolute disaster. See also the 20th century. What can we reclaim? And, and I think we can reclaim the wisdom of Christendom without falling afoul of the accusation that somehow we're trying to turn back the clock or be nostalgic for the 1950s or something like that. Not at all. Of course you can't turn back the clock. Time runs only in one direction. But we can retrieve the, the wisdom and some of the best practices of Christians who knew how to be Christians in a fallen world and plant that in our own time and place. Okay, so post-Christian means humanism without God, as yes. Lubach wrote in his book. <clears throat> Post-post-Christian is positive. Now we're going to retrieve what was yes. lost in the post-Christian right. year. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. So um, may I take that to be, an, uh, well, this is sort of rhetorical, but because I have read the book <clears throat> at least once, that Christian lost is post-Christian. Right. Christian found is post-post-Christian. That's correct, yes. All right. Now uh, you dedicate this to the memory of John Sr. Yes. What memory do you have of him? Only through his writings. Uh, he died before I, I discovered his, his books. 
but I, I read his, uh, his books, the one was called The Death of Christian Culture, which was a brilliant diagnosis of what I had later called the post-Christian era. And then he, he did a follow-up book called The Restoration of Christian Culture, which I'm calling the post-post-Christian era. And then I've read various collections of his essays and so on. So he was a man who was steeped in the tradition, but he just, he came to the tradition relatively late in his life. He wandered through the secular wasteland by his own account for a number of years, rediscovered authentic Catholic tradition, saw its link to a truly humane and godly civilization, and said, we, we have to do better. Uh, we need to go backwards in order to go forwards. So I was just kind of a, a, a restatement of that. But as I said, told as a day-by-day -day war journal during uh, a, a critical time of people being bathed in the bitter fruits of the rejection of Christ and the public order. All right. Well, I knew him personally. <clears throat> I also knew many of the students of the Pearson program, which she and two other Catholics had at Kansas University of Kansas. Excuse me. <clears throat> we're cold here. Uh, and just a couple of anecdotes about him. Uh, well, first of all, not an anecdote so much, but uh, during the 10 years he had this program, there were 800 converts of the Catholic faith at this oh. university. Not only the faith, but the Kansas City Star actually had a, a, a headline, a cartoon across the front page of the paper, four different little uh, uh, windows there. The first one, this was in the 1960s and 70s, showing these students coming, University of Kansas, uh, beards, you know, smoking pot, barefoot, jeans are torn up. And then uh, the next picture is they're going into the Pearson program and they've got suits and ties. Uh, and then the next picture is there. Uh, was it the second? But anyway, the, the last picture is their monastic garb going into a monastery because many of his former students became monks. Right. In fact, they joined Foncambeau in France who came back to, to have a foundation in, uh, in Oklahoma. Right. And, uh, and so that his, his, uh, his influence continues even to this day in that monastery. That's one thing. Secondly, when, when I when I began a program called the St. Ignatius Institute in the University of San Francisco, and uh, we brought him in as a speaker. And this was in the early days of EWTN. And so I asked Mother Zelka to send a crew out, which she did. And so we had the, the room was packed, and uh, he was giving me a talk on Catholic culture and restoration of culture. And I told him, well, this is being, you know, televised. So what he said, the first thing he said was, all you, all you watching this on TV, I've got one recommendation. Smash the TV. Get rid of that. <laughs> yeah. Brother Angelica was not happy. Okay, so in your, in your preface, you talk about his view of Christendom and Malcolm Muggeridge's view, which seemed to be contradictory, but you think there's, uh, a, a paradoxical reunion of them. Explain that to me. It's two sides of the same coin. Malcolm Muggeridge, again, you know, uh, a man of, of serious faith and, and, and learning and erudition, uh, you know, very much influenced by, by Mother Teresa, 
uh, use Christendom in a negative sense of the word. Uh, what one friend called the status quo ordo, what some social critics called the business of, of churchianity. The, uh, so in that sense, Christendom is the contemporary statement of the unhappy relationship between Herod and the Pharisees. So that's the negative side. And we have to take that critique very seriously. Well, Christendom has had institutional uh, right. rigidity and, and uh, okay. Well, it's not only institutional rigidity, but taking the coin of Caesar and pandering after the approval of the court jesters or okay. what our, our father, St. Ignatius, would call pride, riches, and honors. Okay. And then the flip side uh, of that is, is institutional Christianity at its best, building the cathedrals, the, the, the monasteries, the hospitals, the schools, the universities, and, and so on, where uh, the, the faith isn't just me and my personal relationship with Jesus in a corner somewhere, but actively being leaven in the bread, uh, evangelizing the world, also known as the old evangelization. So you, you see this as a, a view of our present time, which integrates the insights both of Muggeridge and of John Sr. Right. In the forward by Joseph Pierce, uh, who is a wonderful author, writer in his own right, obviously. Yeah, and a friend. He compares this to books by Ratzinger, C.S. Lewis, and Kraft. That's a pretty high bar, is it not? <laughs> Uh, well, Joseph Pierce is, is a friend and, and a very, very kind man. Uh, I approach those names with with fear and, and trembling. You know, I'm I'm just some kid from Newark, New Jersey. Uh, I show up with a couple loaves and a fish. I offer them to our Lord, and then we see what, what he, he does uh, with them. This book, in a certain sense, is a reflection of the fact that, you know, I've been thinking and writing and praying and preaching for a long time now. And maybe it's a sign of my old age that I'm starting to connect the dots in a, in a, in a, in a bigger picture in a way that I haven't been able to, to do so before. Things have been wrong for a very, very long time in the public aspect of Christian life, as well as the private, the corporate and the individual. And uh, post-Christianity is, is running its course. It, it's collapsing. Uh, the momentum that it, it used to ride on the husk of Christian civilization, that's almost gone too. You know, we're, we're told now that it's time for a Eucharistic revival. It's another topic for another time. I think we need to do more than just resuscitate business as usual. We need to reclaim the wisdom of the past and, and, and plant it in our own time. Yes, and, and Carlo Rassiger, in his book, Faith in the Future, which were radio talks he gave in 1969-70. His last chapter is on the Church of the Future, and it's exactly what you're talking about there, is that we have to have creative communities of intentional Christians who live the faith, love the tradition, live it in their lives, and we will be there when our society finally collapses, reaches the dead end, and right. looking for, you know, a, a home. Right. Uh, you know, epigraphs are always important I think to me, especially in good authors like yourself. Uh, and you have two epigraphs here, one by Logan Pearsall Smith. I won't read that. It has to do with the, you know, what are you going to write about? Basically everything. Uh, but then this one by Thomas Prufer, this book as is a whole, not really a collection, not what Aristotle calls a heap, Soros, 
interesting <laughs> Soros is a heap, but a unified and organic work. The parts are not merely juxtaposed, but affect and come into Well, that's an interesting epigraph <clears throat> because this is an unusual book. <clears throat> it's not written as a book. This is kind of like your, your journal yes. that you then put together, right? So how, how can you claim that this book is a whole and not a mere collection of it's merely uh, the summation of your random musings during the time of war? Well, Thomas Prufer was uh, a professor of, of mine, and I've I've uh, I've reread some of his work recently, and I found that he had he had more of an influence on me that, than I had discovered. I think that there there is uh, there is a unity to the book. Yes, it was a, a, a journal. I, I I wrote it in a very unusual way. I got a, a very thick journal of very thin Japanese paper, and I resolved to fill the journal before I reviewed it. We both know my previous book, Real Philosophy for Real People, took entirely too long to write because I wanted to craft each sentence to platonic perfection before I went forward. So in the spirit of Audrey Contra, I said, I, I don't want to be caught up in the paralysis of analysis. But once I completed it, I saw that there really was a whole, and the guiding principle was analyzing uh, the recent past and current events in light of the Muggeridge uh, John Sr. approach to Christendom, avoiding the Christianity, accepting the blandishments of the world, seeking the coin of Caesar and the applause of the court gestures on the one hand, and on the other hand, urging for that reunion of nature and grace that God intended for the whole world through through Christian revelation. So in, in that sense, uh, I argue that it really is uh, a, a unity. All right. Uh I mean, I found it fascinating, even though I like you and <clears throat> everything. But, uh, uh, you didn't say that, that it made you like me more, though. Yeah, because the meditation, well, you know, there's not a whole lot in here <clears throat> that we haven't discussed over wine and, <clears throat> you know, bread at one time or another. Uh, and it, it has these, you know, different episodes in it, which you've strung together. But as you say, there is unity to them. Uh, just to give people a kind of a flavor of this, I thought we'd pick on this one uh, chapter here, one topic, which is um, a Jesuit's first look at the Benedict option. Yes. And you have somebody to say about that, which is both positive and critical. So right. can you elaborate a bit on that? Sure. Well, you know, uh, Rod Dreyer made a name for himself with a book called The Benedict Option. And it was uh, inspired by uh, a book that first came out in the 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 nineteen the nineteen eighties called After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre. I read that my first summer as as a Jesuit. You know, when Jesuit novices have summer vacation, we call it villa. My province at the time had a house at the Jersey Shore, and while other people were bringing you know beach reading, you know novels and thrillers and so on, I was reading Alistair McIntyre. And at the end of the book. Uh, where McIntyre talks, you know, very critically about the way the world was going, even back in, in, in the 1980s, he said, what we need is a new St. Benedict. And the illustration he gave, when Benedict saw that the world was falling apart, that, that this uh, Roman civilization was collapsing, he built monasteries, and here I'm paraphrasing, and the monks pulled up the drawbridge and copied manuscripts and, and prayed the Liturgy of the Hours, the Divine Office, until the sound of the slaughter stopped 
and then drop the drawbridge and went out and re-evangelized what's left over. Now, there's a very great wisdom to that, which I appreciate and respect. But even as a novice, I said, but I'm a Jesuit. Jesuits don't pull the drawbridge up and wait out the storm. They go out into the thick of things, and more often than not, they get themselves killed. Nearly all Jesuit saints and blesseds were were martyrs, uh, as you know. So how does a Jesuit see the collapse of civilization in his own time? Just as Augustine looked at the window while writing The City of God and saw the vandals laying siege to his city of, of Hippo, I see the corrosive effects of naturalism, modernity, postmodernity, corroding the Enlightenment sham uh, and corroding even the foundations of authentic Christian civilization. It, it's, it's all going to teeter sooner or later in, in both of our lifetimes, I believe very strongly. What does a Jesuit have to say to that? Well, a Jesuit who knows the spiritual exercises say, you have to preach Christ crucified and you have to proclaim Christ as king. Christ the king who is crucified and risen, Christ who, yes, returns in glory to judge the living and the dead in the world by fire, but Christ who reigns now. Belloc was right, Christ or chaos. Uh, to the degree that you see madness in the world, you see human life not in conformity to Christ. A Jesuit is obliged before God to say that out loud. All right. So you would say as a Jesuit, as Jesuit, we should not pull up the drawbridge, but be out there sallying forth, right? doing what we can, which is what, of course, you try and do with your radio and yes. we do with our publishing. Uh, but what about, you know, the Catholic family homeschooling their kids or trying to find a Catholic school? To what extent should they pull up the drawbridges? Well, you know, at, towards the end of the book, I, I, I lay out different options. You know, uh, Rod Dreyer says the Benedict option is what he calls secession in place and, and the forming of small intentional communities. I also talk about, uh, you know, do you build an ark? Do you go into the catacombs? Do you sally forth in terms of a reconquista? And, and the short answer is it depends. You know, are you a homeschooling mom? Are you a brain surgeon? Are you pregnant? Are you, a, what, I, and I don't know, you have to discern for yourself in your time. Uh, I think, the, the universal call to holiness demands a profound conversion, especially in the sick times that we're living in. We do have to form communities, uh, and sometimes maybe we need to store away uh, beans and Band-Aids and, and start vacuum sealing hosts and putting away altar wine. But you have to make that decision as a family and as communities of families. We live in a hostile world that uh, as civil structures begin to corrode even more, are going to become even more hostile. As I say very often from the pulpit, we're going to find out very soon that not only is lukewarm Catholicism inadequate for the needs of our souls and the spiritual dangers we're going to face, we're going to find that even lukewarm Catholicism is too costly even for lukewarm Catholics. So the my book is a wake-up call to say we've got to get serious about discipleship and we have to find communities that will help us to live out both the spiritual and the corporal works of mercy. Yes, so I would say that we need actual monasteries yes. and actual convents with, with contemplative religious praying 
and that's an important, very important part of the church. Yes. Uh, we also need communities, as you say, of lay Catholics who around their parish or around a particular group support and encourage each other, but they're living in the world. And there's different ways, as you say, each person has a different way of witnessing. And some, it's just by being there. And right. people people can recognize something different. They should about a serious Christian. And sometimes just by saying this or, you know, speaking up or whatever. So it's diversified. Many gifts, many spiritual gifts, all one body. Uh, yes. But, I, but I, I do think that Christendom uh, will not in the immediate future be uh, a large-scale public uh, Christian structure like what it was in the Middle Ages, but Christendom still needs to exist, even if it's kind of broken up into a small Christendom, so to speak, that are connected, and not just by the internet, because that's good, like we're doing this now, and, you know, we're across the bay, but we're digitally together here, virtually together. That's important. That's good. Podcasts are good, but nothing can replace the personal contact with others to form a community and to spread the faith. However, you need ammunition. You need yes. means. And that's what books do. That's yes. what podcasts do. That's what the radio does. Yes. So before I conclude this, do you have any other things you want to say about this book besides to buy it? <clears throat> uh, you, you should certainly buy it. Buy copies for your friends. This is something that I – it's something that you can read a little bit at a time, digest at your own pace. Uh, it should be studied. Uh, it should be prayed over. It should also be discussed with family and friends so that you can look at each other and say, how shall we live together? You know, have 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 a weekly discussion group based on this book. You know, resolve to go to mass together on Sundays. Absolve, you know, resolve to observe the, the first Saturdays together, as, as Our Lady says at Fatima. But, but read the book and then talk about it with others who, who've read the book. If you do that, then I think that the book can do its, its good work in people. And do you think it pairs best with, excuse me, with a cigar or with a pipe? Well, you know, I, um, I'm sure that Chesterton and Tolkien would lean towards, uh, would lean towards pipes. Uh, that takes a little bit more more attention. You, you can read it while smoking a cigar, and then and then discuss it with people with, with pipes. I, I I think that would be suitable, uh, uh, or over wine and cheese. Accessing my inner Italian. Well, that's my second question. Would it pair best with a Chardonnay or a Burgundy, kind of a light red, or more of a dark red? You know, like a Merlot. Oh no, no, you 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 want uh, you want a very uh, robust red with uh, some strong cheese, probably Stilton. Very good. All right. Well, thank you, Father McTagg, uh, for this interview. And uh, we hope to see you in the next Ignatius Press podcast, all who are listening or watching. God bless you all. Thank you very much. God bless your good work, Father. All right. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.